How do faculty learn to teach? In many graduate programs, the emphasis is on research and publications, yet many of these graduates end up in teaching positions. In this episode, we discuss the structures and incentives that undermine good teaching and explore ways to help grad students and new faculty prepare for their careers in higher education. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Christina Mitchell, a faculty member and director of the online education program for the political science department at Texas Tech, and Whitney Ross Monzo, an assistant professor of political science and the assistant director of the Meredith Poll at Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome, Whitney, and welcome back, Christina. Hi, thanks for having us. It's good to have both of you here. Our teas today are... I'm actually drinking water. I have my usual Diet Coke. <laughs> as on two previous episodes. One of our most popular episodes, by the way, the one on gender bias and course evaluations is in our top three, I think. Yep. Great. John, how about you? I am drinking ginger green tea. And I'm drinking my usual <laughs> English afternoon tea once again. I was going to ask if it was dragon oolong. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds like most of us are drinking our usuals, huh? So it's not uncommon to have conversations about job preparedness and transitioning from student to professional in undergraduate education. What is more uncommon is challenging whether or not PhD or other advanced degree programs prepare students for the work that they will be doing, like both of you did in a recent Inside Higher Ed article. What do you think prevents us from having that conversation? I think that there are incentives for professors at R1 universities to recreate themselves. So I think that it's an uncomfortable conversation for many R1 professors to even want to start because they probably don't want to look too closely at this issue because I think to do it correctly might call for a pretty radical change in how we structure a lot of grad programs. Is this because the prestige of the institution or the department is tied to the placements in R1 universities and the publication record of the graduates? Yeah, very much so. I definitely think so as well. I think that a lot of times when HD programs are advertising their programs to potential students. One of the things that students want to see is what kind of placement their graduates are getting. So programs that place their students really well attract the top graduate students. And those graduate students, because they're great graduate students that have chosen good programs, they get good placements, which then continues to attract the best graduate students. So it can be really difficult for mid to low level PhD producing institutions to attract good students because of this self-perpetuating cycle. But the incentive is still there to try and compete with the top tier institutions. And each faculty member who's sponsoring a PhD graduate, they want their student to get the highest placement possible, which means training them like a researcher. Because we don't have a similar sort of ranking system in terms of teaching productivity. Not right. at all. Exactly. We can have a whole conversation about how there should be two kinds of professors at R1 universities, the research professors and the teaching professors. But in the current climate in academia, teaching professors are not considered as prestigious as the research professors for a lot of the reasons that Christina just outlined. 
So there's no reason for an R1 professor to learn how to be a good teacher or to keep up in current pedagogy because what they need to be keeping up on is current research practices. One of the things that the two of you outline in your article is that there's a very small subset of people earning PhDs who actually go into R1s and do this academic research, but most of them end up in positions where teaching is a big part of their workload. But as we just mentioned, very few of them have been trained to be teachers. So why do you think there's such a disconnect other than this prestige piece? Is there anything else to the puzzle? Well, I would argue that many R1 professors, because of the research incentives, haven't really learned how to be good teachers themselves. So they might feel as though they don't have the qualifications to teach someone else how to be a good teacher. And they've also been hired because of their expertise and their publications, which doesn't put much weight on the quality of their teaching. So what can we do about that? That's a great question. So right now I am at an R1 institution with a PhD program in political science. And we've had this conversation. It is a difficult conversation to have because a lot of times I think professors view that if their students get placements at full-time at a community college or even at a teaching institution, that that's not a good placement, that there's something less than or something failure about that kind of placement. So I think one of the most important things is just to change the culture about the way we talk about these things. And that's something that can't change overnight. Obviously, this is a really slow process. But instead of telling our graduate students, you need to publish so you can get a really good research placement, Asking students to tell us why they're here. Why are you in graduate school? What do you want to do afterwards? And sometimes that can result in really difficult conversations with my undergrads who want to go into graduate school. When they say, I want to go into graduate school, I want to be you when I grow up. I want to be a professor. I want to do research. This is something I want to do. I tell them, then you better make sure you go to a top 20 program. Because if you aren't in one of those programs, the likelihood of you getting an R1 research professorship is really low. And so if we have PhD candidates who are saying, what I really want to do is work at an R1 institution, we need to be candid with them about what their odds are and how they can go from a mid or low tier PhD producing institution up to an R1. It's going to be a long process with a lot of publishing. And you can kind of publish your way out. But alternatively, it's also important to value the students that say, what I want to do is teach or what I want to do is go into industry or be a consultant. That's what I want to do with my PhD. If we can change the culture enough to not view teaching as a low-end placement instead of to start thinking of it as a legitimate career opportunity, then maybe that can help us think about how we can better prepare PhD students. I think that that's a really important point to encourage the people who come and get a PhD because they want to be teachers at teaching institutions, not only because that's the more likely job that they'll have, but also because of actually the tweet that started this whole thing, which we referenced in the article from Simon Hicks, who said that over the course of his career, the thing that has been most meaningful to him have been the interactions he's had with students and the teaching opportunities that he's had with them. So I think that if we have this mindset that the only thing that's worthwhile is being a prof at R1 and doing high-level research that's cited all over the place. That's not the only thing that is meaningful in academia. There shouldn't be anything wrong with acknowledging that, yeah, you can be a really awesome teacher and lead students to be the next generation of leaders themselves. One of the things that you've both mentioned is the change that would need to happen takes a lot of time. So for students who are in the position where they might want to be a teaching faculty member and they want to emphasize teaching, but they're at a university that doesn't provide those kinds of experiences, what kind of advice or guidance can we give those students to gain the experience that they might need to 
actually get a job at a teaching institution? Because if you don't have experience, then you often can't get those positions either. Absolutely. So one of the things that I do at Texas Tech with our graduate students, so I do a lot of publication and research on pedagogy. So they're hearing messages from their graduate faculty, which I don't teach grad students, I only teach undergrads, but they are hearing the messaging from their graduate faculty that they need to focus on publishing. And then they're also having a realistic expectation of the kind of job they can get. So oftentimes what I do is offer, if they want to co-author a pedagogy piece with me, then that can kind of kill two birds with one stone. And that can fulfill some of those publication expectations while making them more marketable in the teaching faculty job market. So having a pedagogy piece, a published pedagogy piece, can send a signal to a search committee for a teaching intensive position that pedagogy is something that you care about and that you're applying your research skills that you learned in your PhD program to the way you're going to teach. Some of this, I think, carries over a bit to undergraduate institutions where most of the people coming out of grad school tend to emphasize research. That often seems to carry through through the promotion and tenure process. Because even at undergraduate institutions where their primary focus is on teaching, much of the promotion, merit pay, and so forth is tied to publications. And it seems like it may be part of a broader cultural issue, not just at the graduate program level. What do you think? Well, so I'm at a teaching institution, and I was actually that student that you just referred to, Rebecca, the one who knew they wanted to do teaching right off the bat. My advisor kind of discouraged me from it, but once he could see I was serious, he helped me get teaching assignments at my R1 institution so that I could have that on my resume, which I would say is the number one piece of advice I could give anybody who wants to get a teaching job is have a class that you are the primary instructor on. So at my institution now, I got my job, I'm tenure track. And I am still expected to publish, but I do get credit for those pedagogy pieces that Christina was referring to, which don't always garner the same kind of promotion credit at an R1. So I am expected to publish and be active in my field, but what that means is a lot different than what it means at an R1. It doesn't mean I have to land pieces in the top three political science journals. If I'm getting the name of my institution out in the media in something like this, or if I am quoted in an op-ed, then it doesn't count as much, but it's kind of an incremental count because one of the things that teaching institutions often deal with is they're smaller and they have less budgets. So they need the media attention, and that can be even more valuable than if I publish something in JOP. And you mentioned the scholarship of learning and teaching. That's an area that's grown quite a bit in, I think, most disciplines. That seems to be perhaps an avenue by which some of this problem could be addressed. As Christina just said, when I was a grad student, there was very little research being done on teaching and learning. And now most academic disciplines have journals and group meetings or subgroup meetings where they focus on these things. So maybe that's an area where we're making some progress. I definitely think so. While the scholarship of teaching and learning pieces certainly aren't as highly valued or as considered as prestigious at this point, I've been saying that graduate programs are missing a big opportunity to develop a niche in what kinds of tracks they offer. So most political science graduate programs will offer you're an international specialist or you're an American politics specialist, perhaps you're a methods specialist. Graduate programs are missing an opportunity to offer a track where you're a teaching political science specialist. If we had faculty members who are publishing and experts in the teaching scholarship of political science, that program could market themselves as we are the program that generates people who are going to teach political science. And that could be a great way to start getting your graduate program, maybe you're a mid-level or low-level R1, 
But if your graduate program gets nationally known for turning out really good teachers who go to good teaching institutions or selective liberal arts colleges, that's just as many state tuition dollars for PhD students as a student who's studying international relations. And it could give those students a bit of an edge when they go into the job market, too. I also just want to add that these same issues apply to art schools and places where faculty might be getting other kinds of terminal degrees as well, where their focus might not be on traditional research, but they're doing scholarly activity or creative activity like doing music or art or whatever. And they're focused so much on their studio practice that they don't focus on teaching either. So most of the conversations focus specifically on PhD programs, but the same issue applies to some of these other contexts as well. Well, and I think another thing that's important If you're in a social science, especially, you've been heavily trained in methodology, and we have some world-class research skills. And I think it's important to apply that to the scholarship of teaching and learning as well. Actually, Christina and I's whole publishing relationship started because of an instructional designer at Texas Tech who gave Christina evidence that Christina was like, wait a second, I'm not sure I believe this. Let me go look it up. And we were disappointed to see the lack of consistent rigor in the scholarship of teaching and learning. And so I think because we've already been working on these really rigorous methodological skills, it makes sense that we could also apply them to the scholarship of teaching and learning and ensure that we really are achieving the learning outcomes that all of our colleges and accrediting institutions want us to achieve. One of the things that we haven't addressed much, but I think is worth addressing, is the role that colleges who hire PhDs as teaching faculty what role they play in helping these new faculty members develop teaching skills and what their responsibility is in relationship to the R1 institutions who are producing these potential candidates. I have seen a growth in professionalization courses in PhD programs and most universities and colleges at this point, you have something that resembles like a center for teaching and learning or something similar to this that's trying to systematize the way we teach our teachers. Oftentimes, these are geared toward new faculty, maybe not towards graduate students, but typically they try to make them available. I think that we could do a better job at requiring them and at encouraging them as valuable for graduate student potential careers. I do find that a lot of the professionalism courses and sessions that I observe are more about the professionalization in terms of publishing and going to academic conferences and getting your CV ready to go on the job market and give job talks. So we're moving in the right direction in terms of learning to socialize our graduate students into what to expect. But I still think we have some disconnect between the job market as they will experience it. Now, maybe if you're at one of the top 10 or 20 programs in the country, this isn't going to matter. But if you're not, then this could be the difference between you getting a job and having to adjunct seven courses a semester. Now, I think some disciplines have made some progress. Chemistry and physics, for example, and math have tracks in math ed or chemistry education or physics education where people actually focus on research in that. But it hasn't made it through all the disciplines. I've been the chair of our recruitment committee in my department for 30 years or so now, roughly. And I have noticed, though, that more and more students are coming out with some background, even at R1 institutions. And I know when we go in the job market, maybe because of my position in the teaching center here, one of the things we look at is what sort of background they have in evidence-based teaching practices and so forth. And the people who generally come out in the top of our searches are people who have at least considered these issues or are aware of these issues. I'm not sure how widespread that is, though, in other departments. 
And to be fair, we are limited. We're both political scientists. So we're limited to what our experience was and the experience of those in similar fields that we know. We've talked a lot about two different tracks. PhD candidates from an R1 institution who might get those small select positions as a researcher at an R1 institution. And then we've got the track of people who might become faculty at more of a teaching institution. What about the other PhD candidates and those that might end up in other kinds of roles like consulting or other things that you mentioned previously? What are we doing for them or what do we need to be doing for them? I think that the research track doesn't just have to be for people who want to go on to R1 professorships because uh, the research skills that you learn, you can use in a lot of places that really need researchers, especially in government. My backup job, actually, in case I didn't get a teaching job, was going to be a statistician just because of all of the stats that I've picked up along the way. So I think that the research track could be just a research track and what you do with it after is up to you. But I do think that there is a whole class of people who maybe want a PhD just because they enjoy learning and want the PhD, or maybe they just need the credential to move up in their career, and they don't necessarily want to learn how to teach, or they don't necessarily want to learn how to do research at an R1 level. And I think those people are definitely falling out of the grad programs. And that's a shame because I think that there are a lot of lower ranked PhD institutions that, again, like Christina was talking about earlier, that could be their marketing. Come here and we're not going to bombard you with how to publish in APSR and we're not going to bombard you with pedagogy, but you can get the basic skills that you need and write a dissertation and get the credential that you're looking for. I think there's also some cultural shifts that need to happen here as well, because if getting a tenure track offer at a teaching institution or a full-time offer at a community college is considered a failure, then even more so, I think often leaving academia completely to go into industry is considered like the ultimate failure. And I don't know how universal that is across disciplines. I would imagine things that have a little more practical application would have less of this problem than specific to academia disciplines like political science, sociology, psychology. But thinking about leaving academia completely is sort of the ultimate failure when there's plenty of people that want to do that and are very successful at doing so. So we have a department of public administration within political science at Texas Tech, and it's a terminal master's degree. And oftentimes, I hear like the culture in the department is sometimes that the students that are seeking this master's in public administration, they don't care as much about the research methods. They're not as interested in learning the statistics or, of course, definitely not learning the pedagogy. It's much more of a professional and vocational degree. And at the end of the day, our graduates from that program are probably earning a lot more money than our graduates from our PhD in political science program. So thinking about how we can shift the way we view our students' career goals and trying to match what we teach them to that, that's something that we talk about in undergraduate education all the time. What do our students want to be when they grow up and how can we give them those skills? There's no reason why we can't use that same logic to think about our graduate programs. The same is certainly true in economics. A lot of graduate students, sometimes with PhDs, end up working in government research positions as econometricians, working, for example, for the Department of Labor or the Census Bureau and so forth. And while sometimes it's seen as being a somewhat lower position, they get paid a lot more. But we call that compensating wage differentials. They have to do these jobs that may be a little less pleasant, so they get paid more to compensate for the fact that they're not in academia. They disagree on that feeling quite often. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, they don't get their summers off. They don't get their summers off. What prompted you to address this topic? 
I just want to be really clear that Christina and I had an overall pretty positive experience at our grad institution. So (laughs) this whole conversation didn't come out of a feeling of anger. The whole idea came to me first when I was looking on Twitter and I saw the Simon Hicks tweet about how much he valued teaching. And I was texting Christina and I was like, you know, that's how I feel too. I really value my teaching, but I think sometimes that's not the most valued thing in all of academia. And she was like, yes, at my institution, sometimes being at a teaching institution is seen as lesser than. And so it started this whole conversation about how different the cultures are in our work, but how ultimately we're both satisfied with where we are. And that's where the whole idea for this article came from, just thinking about the different cultures that there are in academia and how they can vary so much. And yet we prepare students generally uniformly across academia. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Winnie and I went to the same graduate program. We were just a couple of years apart. So we received essentially the same training, which had very little focus on teaching or on what you do if you don't want to be a researcher or to go to an R1 institution. So I've spoken to faculty members at our institution since then. Of course, we warned them that this piece was coming, so they wouldn't think we were trying to trash our department. They've said that they've done things since we were there to try and make that better, especially as they've seen where their students are ending up. So while there's still a big focus on research, being an R1 institution, University of Texas at Dallas is never going to not train researchers. But they recognize that a lot of the students that are coming to that program are looking for non-R1 jobs. And our former professors seeing where we've gone, Whitney's at a teaching institution, I am non-tenure track at an R1. And so I think they've been able to look at that history and say, how can we better prepare our students for either one of these options? One of the things that I'd really love to see more programs include is something that I had in my own graduate education, which was a training program for teaching, which gave me a leg up in a lot of pursuits that I had professionally. So I went through the equivalent of the professional development for teachers like we do at our teaching learning center here. I learned about ways to evaluate student work, a little bit about assessment, designing syllabi to be inclusive. So it'd be great to have those kinds of professional development opportunities for a wider variety of potential faculty. We learned about writing syllabi to be more inclusive. We wrote about evaluation systems, thinking about assessment, designing assignments and things. It wasn't nearly as rigorous as it would have been, but it definitely was more than many of other colleagues that I had that went to other institutions and how our different experiences when we entered the field. I would have loved something like that whenever I started because I had no idea what SACS even was when I first began my teaching job and they're telling me about assessing learning outcomes. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I think there is something to be said for throwing me in the deep end and making me learn for myself. And I definitely learned a lot in my first couple of classes. And I apologize to any of those students who are listening. But I think something like that would be excellent. Even just like here, you have to teach this class, write a practice syllabus and having to think about what kinds of assignments you design is so enormously helpful before you're actually on the job. Because especially if you go to a teaching institution and you're teaching a 3-3 or a 4-4, you're not even going to have time to breathe, never mind thoughtfully construct a syllabus. I also think that this is a great place for the intersection of research training and teaching training because a lot of the things that they give us in teaching workshops, here's what works best, here are best practices. Oftentimes, I'm left with the question as someone who's been in teaching for six years and publishing on teaching and learning, a lot of times I'm left with the question, how do you know this is the best practice? Who says? What's the evidence for it? And there's not very much yet. The literature is not robust enough at this time 
to really be able to say what works best. So if we can intersect those research skills that our social science PhDs, that are even our humanities PhDs and our natural science PhDs, they're getting some research training and an ability to think critically about what they're being told. If we can intersect that with looking at what the evidence that does exist on the best practices in teaching and learning, then we're really just creating a positive reinforcement cycle of how these things all work together. None of these exist in a vacuum. Teaching doesn't exist in a vacuum outside of political science. They're inextricably linked. And even where there's some areas where there's a lot of research, there's often not a lot of research in specific disciplines to see whether the results in other fields hold up. And there is a little bit of a replication problem in some of the areas. As you said, there's just not a lot of research on a lot of topics that everyone takes for granted. So it's a ripe area for research. I think it's a ripe area for interdisciplinary research. When I was first teaching, I had a fellowship and a faculty member left about two weeks before the semester. So the director of graduate programs came to me and said, hey, would you like some extra money in addition to your fellowship? You've got this class that starts in two weeks. You did really well in the graduate field. So here's your class. And that was the extent of my training in teaching. It was the first time I was ever in front of a class. Well, and that's actually a really good thing to bring up. If you are a struggling graduate student and you want to work at a teaching institution, not only is adjuncting at a community college beneficial for your resume, but it can also help feed you for a little while. That's very true. We always end by asking, what are you going to do next? I have a couple of pieces right now that are about to be ready to go out for review that are actually looking at some of these best practices. So we're looking at, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Ganya's nine events of instruction. This is something that's often put out there as the best way to teach. And I think it is useful to some extent. But when we examined whether it really made a difference in student performance, we found that students don't necessarily know what order they want things in, nor does it really seem to affect their performance, of course. So we're going to be publishing that, not again, not with the idea that Ganya should be thrown in the trash, but with the idea that a lot of these best practices that we talk about really are just, if it works for you and speaks to you, then you should use it. And if it doesn't, there's no reason why anyone should force you to use it. For me, I'm actually working on a book right now with the director of the Meredith Poll. David McLennan, and a colleague at Coastal Carolina University, Caitlin Sidorsky. And our book is about women in appointed office. I'm at Meredith College, which is a women's college. Besides my passion for teaching, I also have a passion for getting women into politics. 65% of women who run for office served in appointed office first. And appointed office isn't as well studied as women who run for office. So we're writing a book on that. Sounds like two really exciting things coming out soon. And maybe we'll get one or both of you back on in the future. Great. That'd be great. Well, thank you both for joining us this afternoon and giving us some good things to be thinking about. It's an issue that I think affects pretty much all disciplines. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, Join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Brittany Jones, Gabriella Perez, Joseph Santorelli Hansen, and Dante Perez. Music.